Isaiah 66 isn't a summary of the entire book, but it's a pretty good summary of some of the themes that we've been looking at over the last two weeks, which is good because I think these are themes that have been very important in our own hearts and lives. Uh, This chapter is certainly linked to last week's chapter, Isaiah 65, because twice in these verses we're going to read about the new heavens and the new earth, and that was the, the, the theme for last week. So let's have a look. We're not going to read all of the chapter, but I'll let you know where we're picking up as we go along. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person, and whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood, and whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. They've chosen their own ways and they delight in their abominations. So I also will choose harsh treatment for them and will bring on them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your own people who hate you and exclude you because of my name have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. Yet they will be put to shame. Hear that uproar from the city. Hear that noise from the temple. It is the sound of the Lord repaying his enemies all they deserve. Moving down to verse 13. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. And you will be comforted over Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart will rejoice and you will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord will be known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. See, the Lord is coming with fire and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people and many will be those slain by the Lord. Those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one who is among those who eat the flesh of pigs, rats, and other unclean things, they will meet their end together with the ones they follow, declares the Lord. Then from verse 22. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow before me, says the Lord. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all humanity. This is God's word. Not really the way I planned to end uh, the sermon and quite an interesting end to the book of Isaiah, but this too is God's word to us. 
Let's just tell you, this is one of the most difficult sermons I've had to prepare for a very long time. And because of that, we don't have quite the neat structure that we normally have. Uh, you'll just have to hang on as we go through these verses together. Uh, also, I've been reading a lot of my favorite author, Tim Keller, and a, a lot of his thoughts have probably leaked into this sermon. But this is quite a chapter as, as you read through it, and you'll see that there are sections that are hopeful and then sections that are full of judgment. That's, in fact, the pattern right the way through chapters 65 and 66. You get a few verses of hope, a few verses of judgment, a few verses of hope. And I think that's important because the day when God brings the new heavens and the new earth will be a day of hope and joy and peace, and it, at the same time, will be a day of sorrow. And last week, we had a look at the comfort and the joy that the thought of the new heavens and earth bring to us, but it's important that we look at the other side of that today. I've left out uh, the hopeful parts of the chapter, mainly because we looked at them last week, uh, because also the verses are a little obscure, and if you plan to read them this afternoon, just to say the verses basically describe how Israel is going to be a blessing, uh, both to themselves uh, both to God and to the surrounding nations as well. We have Israel going out into the nations, telling what God has done, which is a beautiful picture also of what the church does in terms of reaching out to others. But that's a sermon for another time. Our focus this morning is going to be on this idea of God's judgment on sin. Uh, the thought of the new heavens and earth are comfort and hope, but it's very bad news for those who don't love God those who don't obey him, those who don't want him in their lives. Look again at verses 15 and 16. See, the Lord is coming with fire, and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people, and many will be those slain by the Lord." Let me just pause at this point. Let's, let's bow in prayer because I forgot to do that after we read the scriptures and it's important we do that. <laughs> Father, this is a, a difficult passage to preach and to read and to listen to and yet we ask that you through your Holy Spirit would come and speak deeply into our hearts and lives that we'd hear from you and that we'd be changed by you, please, in Jesus' name. So many people are troubled by this idea that God punishes evil. How can a good God punish people in this way? But the fact of the matter is that if God were to look at the things that go on in our world and shrug his shoulders and say, eh, it doesn't matter that much, it's not really that bad, that wouldn't make him a good and loving God. Quite the opposite, in fact. That would make God a monster. If God could look at the headlines we see in South Africa, look at the murder and the rape and the child abuse that takes place in our country and simply shrug it off, God would not be a loving God. God must punish sin. Some people also feel that this picture of God coming to avenge himself on his enemies seems quite archaic and barbaric and they think, well, this just goes to prove that the God of the Old Testament is a very angry God, but Jesus, the God of the New Testament, is far more loving and caring and nurturing and accepting. 
But it's interesting to see that Jesus takes up this theme of God punishing his enemies. Jesus speaks a great deal about hell. He speaks about those who disobey him and those who are punished in hell. In fact, Jesus quotes these words from Isaiah in Mark chapter 9. Jesus says, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus had more to say about hell than anyone else in the entire Bible, which I find very interesting. I was thinking this week, in 20 years of preaching, this is probably the very first sermon I've preached on the topic of hell. Jesus had no such problems. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells the parable of the weeds and the wheat that grow up together in the same field, the wheat standing for the people of the kingdom, the weeds, the people of the evil one. And Jesus says that that at the end of time, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus is a poor beggar, and both Lazarus and this rich man die. Lazarus going to Abraham's side, and the rich man going into Hades, which Jesus says is a place of torment and agony and fire. And then in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells the parable of the sheep and the goats, the sheep being those who've fed the hungry, given drink to the thirsty, been hospitable to the stranger, clothed the naked, looked after the sick, visited those in prison, and in so doing have unknowingly done those things for Jesus. Whereas the goats are those who have failed to serve Jesus in these ways. And we read that the king, that is Jesus himself, will say to the goats, to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. Just to say in passing that there are some people today who want to suggest that the wicked are annihilated at death. They would say that the Bible speaks about eternal fire, and it's the fire that's eternal, not the people who go into the fire. Those who go into the fire are annihilated. But, but look at the parallelism in this verse. Some receive eternal life. We take that literally. And others receive eternal punishment. That suggests that that's literal. So Jesus had a lot to say about hell, God's final punishment of his enemies. The Bible goes on to speak about hell in terms of fire, in terms of darkness, thirst, weeping, gnashing of teeth. Now, last week, uh, when we looked at the new heavens and the new earth, we said that the, the pictures that Isaiah gives us there aren't necessarily literal 
pictures. We don't have to literally think of people building houses or sitting under uh, vine, vine branches. Isaiah uses pictures to get concepts across to us. And I think it's the same when it comes to God's judgment. You know, the pictures of darkness and fire don't need to be taken literally. They're images which God uses to get some concepts across to us. And so you say, phew, I'm so glad we don't have to take this literally. No, we don't have to take it literally because the reality will be far worse than those pictures. Just as the reality of heaven will be far greater than the images of heaven than we're given, so the reality of hell will be far worse than the images of hell that the Bible gives. So what is the truth that these images are trying to convey? What is God's final punishment of his enemies? What, what is hell? Well, I think the truth is what Jesus says in Matthew 25. Depart from me. Remember, he says to the goats, depart from me. That's what hell is. Hell is to be eternally separated from God. And Paul mentions this in 2 Thessalonians 1. He says, God will punish those who do not know him and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Hell then is to be separated eternally from God. Now, many people think of this in terms of God sending people to hell. But a number of writers point out that actually hell is something that men and women choose themselves. And I think we see something of that here in Isaiah 66. Have a look again at verses 3 and 4. They have chosen their own ways, and they delight in their abominations. So I also will choose harsh treatment for them and will bring on them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. I think the key concept there is the beginning of those verses. They have chosen their own ways. Isaiah's already mentioned this, in fact, in chapter 53, remember? We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. See, many men and women in this life choose their own way instead of choosing God. And when they die, God gives them over to themselves. They didn't want God. They turned away from God. They weren't interested in God in the least. And so in the end, the fairest but worst punishment God can give is to give them what they want. C.S. Lewis, uh, the... Cambridge professor and uh, ex-atheist, dealt with this in a number of places in his works. Uh, in his book, The Problem of Pain, he writes this. I believe that those who end up in hell are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. I don't mean that these people may not wish to come out of hell in the vague fashion wherein an envious man wishes to be happy, but they certainly do not will even the first preliminary stages of that self-abandonment through which alone the soul can reach any good. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved, just as the blessed forever submitting to obedience become through all eternity more and more free. In the long run, 
The answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone. Alas, I am afraid that that is what he does. That is far more terrifying than darkness and flames. To be left alone with myself, without God, being trapped in the little ego of me, myself, and I, that would indeed be hell. But hell is so self-chosen, and those in hell continue to choose it. You can see something of this in Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We don't have time to look at it, but maybe you'd like to read it at home in Luke chapter 16. The rich man is in hell, and he doesn't ask to be released from hell. He's still ordering people around. He tells Abraham what to do. He says, send Lazarus here to bring me some water. He strongly hints that Abraham is the reason that he's in hell. He says, well, you know, if you were just to go and tell my brothers, if you were to send Lazarus to tell my brothers, then they could avoid this. In other words, I didn't get the opportunities that they got. He's, he's, he's in this little hell of, of self-denial, still looking at himself. And some of us have seen the horror of people who are addicted to something, particularly when you're addicted to drugs or alcohol. They know it's wrong. After every drunken stupor, they promise, I'll never do it again. And yet they can't stop themselves. They sell their car. They sell their house. They begin to steal. They mess up every relationship they've got. They end up living out on the streets, but they can't stop. They still blame others. They're still caught up in their own little ego. It's hell. It's the end result of going their own way, trying to find life in something other than God. Just to say, though, that the opposite of this is wonderfully true. We saw this last week. At the end of Isaiah 61, one of God's people says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. And in the picture of the new heavens and the new earth, Isaiah 65, God says, I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. In other words, if my desire is to know God and to delight in him through Jesus Christ, then in the end, God gives me what I most desire, which is him, which is all I really need. And so the theologian J.I. Packer says, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever, worshipping him, or without God forever, worshipping themselves. Timothy Keller writes, If the thing you most want is to worship God in the beauty of his holiness, then that's what you will get. If the thing you most want is to be your own master, then the holiness of God will become an agony and the presence of God a terror that you will flee forever. If we seek after God, then we get him. If we want to be our own master, that's what we'll get. And in fact, we see something of that in life here on earth already. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes these words. 
He says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to all kinds of evil. What will finally happen eternally in the new heavens and the new earth already takes place to some extent right now. People worship created things rather than God, and the punishment for that is that God gives them over to what they want. Let me read a little more C.S. Lewis to you. In his book, Mere Christianity, he puts it this way. Every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your whole life with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. And to be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing to the one state or the other. And Lewis says, well, if that's true in this life, then it must be true in the next, too. He goes on to say, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever, and this must either be true or false. Now, there are a good many things that would not be worth bothering about if I were going to live only 70 years, but which I'd better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for what it would be. In another book, he says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it, You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. So putting all of that together, men and women in this life do one of two things. Either they say with the psalmist, Psalm 16, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Or they echo the word of William Henley's poem, Invictus, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Those who choose God begin to change from glory to glory to become like him right now. Those who reject him are given over to themselves and little by little become hellish creatures. They push God out of their lives completely. They want nothing to do with him. And in the end, God gives them what they want. They spend an eternity without God. 
quotes C.S. Lewis again, in the end, there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who say to God in this life, thy will be done. And there are those to whom eventually God has to say, thy will be done. So what does this mean practically for us this morning? Well, the most important question we have to ask ourselves is this. Do I have a genuine relationship with God where I seek after him in a personal, honest, intimate relationship? That's what verse 2 is about in Isaiah 66, where God says, these are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. He's repeating something that he already said in Isaiah 57. God says, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to, receive, and to revive the heart of the contrite. It's a genuine friendship and relationship with God where I recognize God is God and I'm not. I look at the size of the universe, which is just immense, absolutely immense. <laughs> I mean, you have to measure things in light years, which is how far light goes in a year, which is, I don't know how many trillion kilometers. It's impossible. And so we, we bow before God and we say, you, you are God. You, you, you control the universe. You, you don't need me to advise you. We're contrite in heart, lowly in spirit, just a genuine friendship with God. And let me ask you this morning, is that you? And notice the question is, do you have a relationship with God? Not, do you come to church? You see, you may have been coming to church for decades and not have a genuine, personal, intimate friendship with God. That's what verses 3 and 4 are all about. God says, whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person. Whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood. And whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. These verses are speaking about people who were doing the very best things for God in terms of religious ceremonies, and they thought that they were doing okay, but there's no genuine relationship. They're just going through the motions. And God says, you're wasting your time. I never knew you. Part of this may also be something that we looked at previously, people trying to make themselves right with God. You see, everyone on earth has a set of standards that they use that they think will, will make them right with God, whether that's giving to charity or being nice to a husband or wife or uh, you know, letting the odd taxi in or, or whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, whatever it is, we, we think that these things make us right with God. And when we become Christians, old habits die hard. It's easy for us to think to ourselves, now I'll really be good because I'm going to be doing these things like reading my Bible and praying and going to Bible study. There's nothing wrong with religious activities when we use those activities to draw near to God in genuine friendship. But when we think of those activities as being things that make us right with God, they're as bad as offering God pig's blood. Why? Well, because what makes us right with God is 
infinitely greater than anything we could offer God to make us right with him. What makes us right with God is not perishable things, such as silver or gold, but the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect. And so to stand before God and say, God, I'm a missionary. God, I go to church. God, I read my Bible. That makes me right with you. It's terrible when we consider all that God has done for us in Jesus. And so as we close it, let's look at Jesus' sacrifice for a moment. Do you remember what we said hell was a few moments ago? Remember what, what is hell? Hell is being separated from God. Remember on the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus experienced hell. People who say, I don't believe in hell, people who say, I believe in a loving God who would never pour out infinite suffering on anyone for sin, don't truly understand what Jesus went through on the cross for us. Because on the cross, a loving God did indeed pour out infinite suffering on himself for us. On that cross, Jesus took all of our deserved hells put together. He experienced the depth of hell that no one will ever experience because of the depth of his relationship with the Father. You know, when someone hoots at me in traffic, uh, when someone is rude to me in the queue at pick and pay, when someone is, uh, posts something negative about me on Facebook, it hurts, but it's not devastating because there's no depth of relationship there. The person doesn't know me at all. I don't know them. But if my wife walks out on me, or if my children say something horrible about me, it's a because of the depth of relationship that we have. The longer and the deeper and the more intimate the relationship, the more horrendous is any break in that relationship. So try and imagine how unbelievably devastating it must have been to tear the relationship between God, the eternal Father, and God, the eternal Son. When Jesus was cut off from God, he went into the deepest pit beyond our imagination. He experienced the full wrath of the Father, and he did it voluntarily for you, for me, in our place. That's what Jesus went through for us. And unless we understand something of that, then our Christianity will just degenerate into rules and sacrifices and religious acts. But when we understand something of Jesus' personal sacrifice for us, it will produce that genuine, humble relationship. It will produce joyful self-abandonment, humble boldness, a constant sense of wonder. Then we can truly sing, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all.